0: Chris Pink is the MP for Hellensville. He's a National Party spokesperson for Courts and Veterans Affairs. He's published a book about the pandemic, Flattening the Curve, the real story behind Labour's lockdown. Chris, welcome to Taxpayer Talk.
1: Thanks very much. Great to be joining. You. And can I just be really cheeky and jump right on there? The, the the name of the book in fact, is flattening the country. Sorry, as the, country. To the curve. But you know what? You've done me a service because uh, that was a little play on that whole flattening the curve thing. So the the, the thesis of the book, if you like, is that uh, it's gone much wider than that. Tell us the reason first. Well, we
0: get into the into the, it's a very readable book. Very very conversational and full of uh, Kiwiisms. Tell us, what, why did you, when we were all in lockdown, why did you turn your mind to this?
1: Well, my mind was turned to it, really, by the fact that my day job was helping constituents with a lot of issues that were arising as a result of COVID-19 and a result of the government's response to that. And so, I, you know, the issue had come to me, really. It's not as though I thought, um, well, gosh, what can I write a book about? So during the day, so to speak, and, you know, you'll be pleased to know, you know, that that was a pretty intensive time from the point of view of of an MP trying to help a lot of people who are really uncertain, you know, what they could do in terms of could they operate their business, were they essential or non-essential, could they, uh, you know, live their life in all kinds of ways that that was really unclear to them. So they were getting in touch with me and I was sort of handling all that and so it occurred to me, well, I should... Recording this somewhere, really. So, what's in the book is not exactly a, a list of the specific issues that constituent X or constituent Y came to me with, but it was more just that those were the themes that were dominating my thinking for a period uh, of time when I was locked down as well, like everyone else, uh, and not able to travel the electorate and the country. I had a bit of extra time on my hands, so I thought I'll do something with it I'd be a bit. Uh, worthwhile I thought to to engage in this exercise and now where we sit in, in sort of late June it's interesting because the government hasn't yet committed to a commission of inquiry of any kind so as far as I'm concerned this is the uh, so far the first draft of history it's the only public account of a, a pretty broad range of different uh, issues associated with the, the pandemic and the lockdown. The, the, you, you say in the book that the lockdown was necessary
0: but it's based around the theme of the government effectively, you use the term, set about destroying the village that is New Zealand in order to save it. Perhaps you, tell us what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, well, some of your listeners will recognise the phrase, it was necessary to destroy the village in order to save it, which harks back to the Vietnam War and I, I think a US Army commander taking the approach that it was the right thing to do to, to take all steps necessary to protect that which was in his care, but the reality is by doing that in such a heavy-handed way, there was nothing left. So the theme of the book really is that while, yes, uh, some form of lockdown was necessary, particularly uh, when you consider that we'd left the stable door open so long, being the international border, the, and, and lack of quarantine and self isolation and so on, that the horse had already bolted. So at that point, a lockdown did become necessary. But my argument is really that, having decided that and having made that decision that yes was necessary at that time, what the government did was uh, locked down in a way that was quite um, arbitrary when it comes to uh, talking about the kinds of activities we could do, the kinds of businesses that could run, making a distinction between essential and non-essential. Whereas what it should have, in fact, been doing was distinguishing between that which was safe and that which was unsafe, which is something that they actually ended up getting to uh, in Alert Level 3 as opposed to Alert Level 4, uh, and, and that's a point that I acknowledge in the book. So it's not all bad uh, in terms of the government's response, and I do acknowledge that, to be fair, but I'm also pointing out the ways that things could and should have been done differently, not least of all because we can uh, learn from this.
0: Yeah, you, you sort of, you make the point that we, or, or you, you rebut the point or the political messaging that we went hard and early, and seemed to argue that actually we left it too late, what meant we had to go hard. And I thought it was interesting, the OECD data that you brought in, I think it was OECD, it was a list of countries and how they were relatively performing. And right through, uh, at least until the book was published, it was published a couple of weeks ago, or yep, that we're about middle of the road. Let's, um, the other thing I want to Cover is obviously being the taxpayers' union. We want to talk about the economics. You are pretty critical about the wage subsidy. Why was that?
1: Well, my criticism wasn't that we had a wage subsidy, and in fact the National Party was on record, and, and therefore effectively I was on record quite early on, as saying that there should be some kind of wage subsidy. It's appropriate for taxpayers who have been you know, contributing to the coffers of this country on the basis that a rainy day would come again, be it another earthquake uh, or a financial Type crisis, or in this case, a global pandemic. So you know, having having saved the funds as at least as diligently as, as, um, for example, the government uh, current government is actually doing. You know, it's appropriate to spend it, and a wage subsidy is a good way of doing that because it enables people to be kept in jobs. And again, another theme of the book is that the best way to help business, um, oftentimes for a government, is to get out of its way. Essentially, so the wage subsidy is entirely consistent with that philosophy. And, but but the point was really that a large number of businesses had been contacting me and saying, well, look, that's great as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough because we've got a lot of costs that aren't wage related. Uh, you know, a classic one that we saw playing out a little bit in the political domain was around um, commercial leases. And the political pressure from the PM downwards was that um, landlords shouldn't be charging their tenants um, any kind of rent. And while yes, we would expect and hope that there'd be some Reasonable approach and compromises taken along the way, hashtag be kind. The reality is that landlords too have fixed costs. So there was a lot of pressure in a lot of different directions that I don't think was recognised because, as I argue in the book, a lot of Labour MPs in particular don't have the understanding or the empathy indeed experience, to, to know what it takes to run a business and keep the wheels running uh, and to continue to employ people. And it's a lot more than just uh, continuing to pay them 80% of the wage for a, for a certain period of time.
0: be devil's Advocate, though, what you're um, advocating for is effectively handouts directly to business or bailouts to businesses. At least with the wage subsidy, there was confidence it was getting down to, to the workers and frontline, you know, it ensured people were able to av- afford to go to the supermarket.
1: Yeah, well, that's right. But I mean, we, we, we've got the choice as a country. Are we are we going to pay this out now? Or are we going to pay it out later? What do you mean? Well, we're going to be bailing out a lot of people on the dole queue, effectively, who are going to lose their job as a result of government policies. So we can either help the businesses to keep the lights on for longer, keep more people employed, rather than have them go to rack and ruin, because it's pretty hard to start up a new business from scratch. So the fact of or the the potential for recovery is not just the same. as looking at the downward curve when things go poorly and saying, "Well, look, let's just hold a mirror up to that and and expect that it will be, you know, equivalent on, on the rise." We, we needed to have done everything possible to keep. Places going. And some of it was military and, and, and yes, of course, the organization's right to focus on the economics. But so much of it would have just been a stroke of a pen. Classic example, butchers and greengrocers, they supply food to people just like supermarkets. They weren't able to open their doors fully five weeks in that level four period. And yet there would have been nothing stopping them doing that, provided they could have maintained you know, a couple of metres of queuing and one-in-one one out, maybe even as the dairies did, who again were able to open. So the arbitrary lines all over the place really did make life a lot harder for those individuals, for those businesses, and ultimately for the New Zealand taxpayer now and for generations to come. I want to talk about the role of the media and
0: your, so again, why you did this book. It is fascinating that some of the most insightful and, in fact, critical pieces of New Zealand's response to the pandemic have come from offshore, particularly think of the, that piece in the Australian that was widely distributed around, and you pick up some of that. Why do you think that? I mean, for example, you're I mean, you're a member of Parliament. You're the only person I'm aware of that's already published a book, sort of pulling the stuff together. Why do you think New Zealand isn't um, able or producing the level of commentary that appears to be coming out of Australia
1: on exactly the same matters? I think there are a couple of different issues at play. One is the whole general culture that pervaded the country, which was that we needed to be a team of five million, we needed to unite against this thing, and we need to be kind. And that's all fine as far as it goes, but when it gets to the point that people feel as though they can't raise legitimate Difficulties that they're facing in their personal lives as a result of this, and the media feel constrained from writing pieces that are critical of the government's response in any way, even in a pretty balanced way. <laughs> and I acknowledge my book probably couldn't be characterised as balanced, but you know I'm providing the other side of the story, I guess, and I'm, and I'm open about that. Of course, I am. I'm a National Party MP, but. The reality is that that was a very difficult environment for people to operate in and uh, lavish anything but the most fulsome of praise on the Prime Minister and the Director General of Health and so on. And that lack of scrutiny, by the way, is being played out now. The chickens are coming home to roost in the sense that we're now discovering there are many flaws in terms of lack of border control, lack of testing, lack of robustness of criteria, even the command and control elements in terms of how the operation is run. And uh, I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. Because a lot of that stuff in the book has effectively uh, been coming through now. And, and I think t- to return to your question about the media, well, it's hard to, to swim against the tide, I guess, a little bit in terms of that public opinion as well as the government uh, messaging. But also, in fairness to the media, there to were against some... against the tide, isn't the role, of,
0: the role of the media is to be the critical thought? I mean, it, what your book is very good at doing is pulling all the bespoke pieces and putting them all together. In a, in a coherent way to suggest actually we didn't handle this particularly well and we've only come out about average. We have certainly the extent of the lockdown has meant we have managed to clo- eliminate or close to eliminate who knows what's going on with the border issue and whether we're just we're rolling out the carpet or welcome it back in. What are the lessons do you think the government has successfully learned from from what has happened? I mean, you would have followed the Pandemic Response Committee, you're in Parliament every day. What do you think that that if we have to go back into lockdown again or we get um, community spread again, what do you think the government would do differently? I know, obviously, you're not the government, but from your colleagues, what do you think they have got their head around that among the points made in your book?
1: Well, I think a lot of the a lot of the reactions at level three as opposed to level four were good because we separated on the basis that you could be safe and you could operate safely as opposed to be essential and, and therefore operate or, or or non-essential or not. So that's probably the, one of the key ones. The other one is actually a little bit about democracy, and I know that sounds pretty abstract in answer to your question. We, 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 you know Everyone else is running around talking about washing hands and, and sneezing into your elbow or whatever it is. But the reality is that a lot of the way that we make decisions, I think we can learn lessons from. And actually the government hasn't learned lessons in some of that stuff because they legislated an urgency and famously or infamously passed a piece of legislation enabling you know billions of dollars of loans because they rushed that through and they cocked it up. I think the lesson there would be take a bit more time, trust the opposition to be a bit more involved than we were because on the rare occasions that we're allowed to be part of the process and, and at one point that Epidemic Response Committee was considering some legislation that went through, we actually made a few uh, pretty good changes to that. That was just sensible stuff in the realm of, of managing in, uh, immigration and, 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 and that kind of matter. And insolvency, I think, from memory, we sort of made some changes around allowing people to be a bit more adventurous in the hope that they could continue to keep operating, basically. As opposed to the urgency uh, motions that get rushed through doing some pretty draconian stuff, or at least allowing the executive to do some pretty draconian stuff. And there are a lot of flaws in that process, and, and therefore a lot of flaws in, in practical terms when that law got passed. You said that the National Party said something
0: on the record, so of course you said it on, on the record. A little bit risky, I would have thought, to published this book as a National MP, it's certainly, in terms of the messaging, it's much closer to what I think the messages David Seymour and his ACT Party have been making. What has been the reception from your colleagues and the National Party? Now it's the Todd Muller National Party. Have you had any pushback on, on the book?
1: Well, what I've said consistently to anyone who asks a similar question is that everything in that book... About what we should have done when is consistent with the National Party messaging at the time. So, in 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 January, then why for example, didn't the leader
0: publisher, <laughs> well, either,
1: the, either leader. I, I, either leader. Well, but both leaders and both of my bosses at various points throughout the process, pretty busy, you know, running running their important constitutional role. And, and in Simon's case, being criticised for driving to work for goodness' sake. So this is the level of hysteria. But anyway, look and answer to your question. As I say, it was all consistent with the National Party messaging. At the time, it was also a reflection of the things that my constituents had come to me about as their local MP, and in that sense, it wasn't a party political work, albeit, yes, of course, I do come from a partisan perspective, and I acknowledge that up front, and I acknowledge it now. And in terms of, you know, the National Party's view of the thing, look, we've we've said that it's going to be really important in our pitch ahead of the election. And look, I'm not going to, I'm not here to election year on, on your podcast. And goodness knows we're in the regulated period, so I probably couldn't for legal reasons anyway. But, you know, look, we've got a, a clear distinguishing feature of our brand, which is mostly about, you know, the, the way that we can sort of get the recovery up and running as opposed to looking backwards. And I think my book's actually a good contribution to that because it shows the pressure points that now will arise based on the decisions that were made um, at that crucial time. Last question. One of your colleagues is also publishing
0: a book next month. Judith Collins has a much-anticipated book. Are you going to sell more copies than her?
1: (laughs) We'll have to see, and and, 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 uh, if you get Judith on to the show and ask her the equivalent question, I, I think I know what the answer will be. Chris Pink, thanks for coming on Taxpayer Talk. Thank you very much for the work you do. Cheers.
0: Chris Pink's book is available for only $20 through email flatteningthecountry at gmail.com and on his website chrispink.national.org.nz We also have a couple of copies to give away exclusively to members of the Taxpayers Union. Simply email team at taxpayers.org.nz and tell us on what date was the first confirmed case of coronavirus uh, announced in New Zealand.